Morning. I like those songs. They're kind of a mixture of, you know, Leonard Skinner and gospel. I love that, don't you? Maybe Charlie Daniels. Uh, but anyway, I like his take on that song. I remember that song growing up, and I didn't like it as much as I did that one. <laughs> okay, we're going to continue on in our Matthew series. Uh, and uh, we're in, we've, we're, like I said, we're going to teach this entire book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. I remind you of that every week. But we're going to do it through a series of sub-series. So we're going to break these down into different series so that we can more adequately cover everything. Uh, and today we're uh, in a series called Upside Down. And we're kind of pointing out the things in the scripture that, um, that seem, seem to be upside down from what you would, you would think it would be. Uh, and today's message is going to be uh, kind of no exception. But I titled today's message Unbalanced. Let me kind of explain that. Have you ever noticed that it seems like the good times and the things that bring us joy are a lot fewer than the things that seem to go wrong and the bills and the anybody else ever notice that it seems a little unbalanced doesn't it in life it's kind of like this is spring break right for most schools in the next three weeks and think about it you save all year for your vacation right i mean you work and work the overtime and put the money away and try to get things taken care of and somebody to watch the dog and all that stuff right and then you go on vacation, and it's awesome. But is it just me, or does it seem like it's over in like 10 seconds? You're like, man, that just seems unbalanced. I put all year into saving for that. Unless you're Kevin, he's like, no, I make the best of my vacation. <laughs> Kevin's like, I don't leave the pool until they peel me off the seat. No, but um, it does. It just seems like it's kind of unbalanced. It's just like, you know, everything in life, there's, there's an imbalance in it. Every, every friendship takes a lot of work, doesn't it? And there's, you know, it seems like that for the good times that you have, there's, there's difficult times. Every marriage has difficult times, except mine, which is perfect. No, I'm just kidding. Nobody even bites on that one. Um, partnerships. I mean, you struggle in partnerships. There's always going to be a struggle with a partnership. There's always going to be a, a struggle in families. There's always going to be struggles in everything we do. So there just seems like an imbalance out there. But when you, when you really break it down... If you really enjoy the relationship you have in your marriage, all the struggles are worth it, aren't they? It balances out. If you really enjoy your vacation, it's worth the savings, right? If you really enjoy the fruits of your business, it's, it, it's worth the time and the struggles you face uh, in growing that business. And believe me, I mean, this has always been this way. The disciples face struggles like you wouldn't believe just to get the gospel out there. Every town they went to, there were people wanting to kill them. There were people wanting to silence them. And it just seemed like the world was against them. But what balanced that out was knowing that they were seeing the will of God done. Right now, when we first started Grace, uh, and even till today, to be honest with you, it was a struggle. And sometimes you start, you know, the, the enemy starts whispering in your ear, is this really worth it? You know, because we started off in a reception hall. And we're thinking, this is going to be great. But have you ever had to tear down sound equipment, put chairs up and down every week? And then you set up, and everybody you know, is practicing, getting ready, and you can hear dishes breaking in the reception hall behind you, and cooks yelling at busboys, right? And then we were paying probably more than our mortgage payment here just to rent it for two days a week. So it was definitely a struggle, but you know what balanced it out? We grew from 14 people to about 35 or 40 there in under a year. So then we moved to a storefront that we had to completely remodel, right? And as soon as we get it remodeled, we think, this is going to be great. You know, we got a bigger space, and immediately we had issues with the city fighting us on zoning, fighting us on parking, you know, with other stores. I mean, it just seemed like one battle after another. 
especially battling that stigma of storefront churches. Everybody's like, oh, I noticed you're a storefront church, so do you guys like handle snakes and stuff? I'm like, what is, what's the deal? Right? But you know what? We grew to like 80 or 90 people there in, over, in about two years. So the joy of that made it, made it all balance out. When we moved into this building, we've had to remodel this, what, three or four times? I mean, we're like still remodeling stuff as we go, right? And, and it's cost a lot of money. And as soon as we get something done, the roof will go bad. Here's one that really got me. One time we got the roof, we got everything done. We're thinking things are going well. Lightning hit our bell tower. And Friday, at that point, the devil's going, are you sure you should be in this business? You know, lightning, that comes from God. That's, that's what I felt like, you know what I mean? But, you know, God blessed us, and we've grown to hundreds here, and God's just been so good. And now we're working on the North Campus, and it seems like impossible odds. It seems unbalanced, but God is going to give us victory there, too. The, here's, here's the whole purpose. The purpose is if it's worth it, then you don't mind the, the seeming imbalance in this world. So let's take a look at this, because... Jesus is trying to teach this this week, but let me catch you up from last week. Last week, Jesus really powerfully illustrated the importance of humility. Because he said that unless someone becomes as humble as what? A child. As humble as a child, that they wouldn't enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, 2 says, And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I told you a lot of people mistake this as him talking to his disciples. He was actually talking to unbelievers here, right? And he's telling them, listen, unless you humble yourself and have the childlike faith, like a child believes their parents and distrust in God, you'll never enter heaven. And then he starts to kind of make the comparison of, of, of the childlike faith and the believer, and the new believer kind of making a comparison between the two of them. And then he starts to say, listen, when one, of these, when one of these who actually put that childlike faith in believe, don't try to make them stumble. Don't get in their way. Don't hold them up, right? Matthew 18, 5 says, And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him, listen to this, to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. I'm thinking... Well, okay then. So it's a bad thing, right? So he's saying we should not try to get in their way. Trying to hinder someone from believing or a new believer, he said, will be dealt with severely. And it's kind of funny because the Greek word used for stumble literally means to try to trip somebody and make them fall. And you think about what kind of person would try to trip a kid and make them fall just for fun? Don't answer that. Too many of you have brothers, but... um, you know, he's talking about that kind of person. He's saying the kind of person who would just like to see a child hurt is the same kind of person that would hinder someone from believing or growing in their faith. And so today he's going to talk about the fate of those who would do that, and he's going to give a warning to believers. So let's jump into Matthew chapter 18, start, uh, starting in verse 7. He says, Woe to what? Remember that. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is, it, for it is what? Inevitable. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Right now, verse 7 is a continuation of the topic we were discussing in verse 6. Okay, so he's still talking to unbelievers here. Right, and Matthew makes that really obvious because he says the world. Right, now did you ever wonder why they refer to the world so many times in the scripture as, as, you know, as unbelieving or as not good? And that's because the Greek word for world literally means the world system. 
or the system of the world that is estranged against God, the system of the world that rejects God and works against God. So this is definitely talking to unbelievers. The Apostle Paul even tells us that the world system is under the control of the enemy, and God allows that. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 4, it says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of what? This world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. All right? So we shouldn't really be shocked that the world's against us. We shouldn't be shocked that we're going to face struggles. It's going to happen. Every time you step out for God, something is going to come against you. It's the way it's worked since the beginning of time, right? Every time you start to do something good, the enemy's going to step out against you. But in this section, Jesus actually says, woe to the person who brings these stumblings. And he actually says it twice. And what that means uh, in their text, it meant that this judgment was not just judgment, it was severe judgment. So the anti-God system and all those people who work within that system who try to make believers stumble, he's saying the judgment is going to be great on you. Now a lot of people say, well, I mean, they're all going to hell. Isn't hell bad no matter what? Listen, I don't understand how it's going to be worse, but it is going to be worse for those who try to make people stumble or hinder people from believing. And we still see that. Has anyone noticed and maybe I'm the only one, I hope not, that the world is working against Christianity. How many people have noticed that? I mean, it's crazy. It starts subtly, like they start teaching our kids that we came, you know, through the process of evolution, right? That we all came from a primordial soup into monkeys into something else and then became, you know, people, right? And then while they're doing that, they don't just teach it as a theory. They mock people who believe that there's a creator. Literally mock them. You ought to sit in a classroom and hear how this is taught. And I'm not saying all teachers do that, but they mock people. Oh, yeah, like the world was created by some big, friendly guy with a... Where do they get the long white beard? Does anybody know where they get the long white beard? Some guy with a long white beard who just happily made the world. And I go, well, that's as easy to believe as some sludge somewhere turned into, you know, a lizard that turned into a gator that turned into a bird that turned into a human. I'm be honest with you, I'm leaning toward the God side, making a little more sense there, right? But they mock creation when they teach it. And then if you notice that our culture embraces free thinking, it embraces almost every world religion, it embraces universalism, it embraces atheism. But the whole time it's embracing all those things and being so tolerant of all those things, Christianity is being villainized. You notice that? Just being villainized. And while they villainize Christianity, they glorify immorality, they glorify all the things that are against God. And, and what happens is people who grow up around this start to think that maybe, maybe I am narrow-minded. How can so many people disagree with me? You know what I mean? I mean, this is still going on. This is the enemy's tool. He loves to make people doubt and disregard God. And Jesus was telling his disciples, listen, expect this. This is going to happen. This is his job. When you try to do something good for me, they're going to step out against you. And they're going to come at you hard, right? So he's saying, I want you to understand. I know it's tough. I know it seems unbalanced, but trust me, I will bless you for your efforts. And the reward in heaven and the reward on this earth is so worth it. Just trust me, they're going to get theirs. I'll handle that, right? But 
to the most people, it just seems like, gosh, I just don't get it. And he warned them, you're going to face those struggles. Has anybody ever noticed that, that since you became a believer, you've got a whole new set of struggles? Anybody ever noticed that? And this is what he was warning them about, okay? And he's saying, listen, I know that they're going to come after you. I know they're going to try to make you doubt, but trust me, woe to them. He says it twice, woe to them. Because judgment is going to be great on all those who try to dissuade people from believing or growing closer to God, right? So basically, what he's about to do is say, and the only hope those people have that are trying to dissuade, those people that are trying to get you to disregard God, the only hope they have is to get rid of whatever's got them locked into this world and to turn to me. But he does it through this, this section that a lot of people misunderstand. Matthew 18, 8. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, what? Cut it off. Has anybody ever, now be honest, have you ever read this and thought, whoa, wait a minute. I remember when I first, when I first became a believer, and I've openly admitted this, I didn't know anything. And I'm thinking, so like if I have an impure thought, should I really cut my eyes out? Because let's face it, anybody here who's, had, who's, who's seen something that was appealing to the eyes, if you plucked them out, would anybody in this room have eyeballs? Okay, this seems pretty harsh. Right, but remember, he's talking to unbelievers. He says, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away from you. It is better that you enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fire. You see how this couldn't be talking to believers? Right, because he's saying, if you don't do this, you can end up in eternal fire. Believers already have that, set, that, that handled. Right, he says, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it away from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into a fiery hell so when you first see this when you first read this let's be honest it kind of freaks you out you're kind of thinking to yourself this is pretty extreme what does he actually mean he's not teaching self-mutilization here that's not what he's teaching he's not teaching asceticism where punish yourself you know to be blessed it's not it's not what he's talking about here see jesus was speaking hypothetically and he was using hyperbole Right? And hyperbole means exaggerated statements not meant to be taken literally. Like when you tell somebody, hey, it's a big game today, go break a leg. <laughs> Are you really saying this is the big day, go snap your femur? Is that what you're saying? You don't mean for them to take it literally. It, this wasn't meant to be taken literally. Right? And some people believe that it, he's being literal here. He, he's not being literal because if he were being literal that would mean that the source of our sin could actually be the physical members of our body right and if that were the case in a way as gross as it sounds it would actually be easier wouldn't it you know what i mean i can't stop looking at things i shouldn't i'm just going to pluck my eyes out and i won't sin anymore that would be easier painful but easier right if someone you know found themselves constantly taking what they shouldn't take or holding on to things they shouldn't hold on to simple cut your hands off no more sin, right? This is not what he was talking about here. What Jesus wanted them to see was the source of sin was much, much deeper than that. See, here's what we don't understand is that our body just follows the orders that it receives from our heart. You understand? Our heart, our mind, gives orders to the members. Matthew 15, 18 says, But things that proceed out of the mouth come from what? The heart. And those things uh, defile the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, slanders. So we see here that it says it comes from the heart. 
Now, the word heart in the Greek is cardia, and what it means is inner self or mind, right? The part of you, the conscious part of you that makes you make decisions, your mind, right? So when you see eyes that are full of lust or envy, there's nothing wrong with those eyes. Those eyes are revealing that there is a heart that is discontent and lustful. It's revealing what's happening in the heart. And if someone has those hands that are just holding on to the world, trying to get all they can get, not noticing God, there's nothing wrong with those hands. Those hands reveal that that person has a greedy, discontent heart. That's what's going on inside of that person. You know that mouth that lies and gossips and tries to convince people to reject God and rejects God itself? There's nothing wrong with that mouth. That mouth is revealing that there is an impure heart in that person or the inner being of that person isn't right. What he was saying is whatever is going on in your members is revealing the condition of your heart. Whatever that is, you need to get rid of it. Whatever in your heart is hindering you from coming to me, you need to get rid of it. It needs to be removed from you. Because if you don't, you'll end up in hell. Right? I and mean, this, is, this is really tough stuff. So basically saying, you don't have to cut off any of your body parts, but you do need a heart transplant. And when I say that, people go, well, what do you mean? When you first believe, the Bible says we become a new creation. Now, let's be honest. When we first come to faith in Christ, it's pretty selfish, isn't it? We don't become a believer to save the world. We become a believer because we don't want to do what? We don't want to go to hell. And there's nothing wrong with that. That shows you're intelligent. When we come to Christ, we come to Christ a little bit on the, you know, on the self-serving side. But something amazing happens once you believe. And I don't know how many of you noticed this. I hope all of you. But did you notice once you started believing, you saw people differently? Your concern for people changed? Your heart literally changed, and you could see it by the way you treated them. Your body revealed that something big had happened in here. Your love, your compassion went up. It was amazing when I felt that change in me because I was really hard before, and I didn't care about much. But I became a believer, and when I would find out that someone was hurting, I hurt with them. When I knew someone didn't know Christ, the first thing that happened inside of me was I wanted to share them with them because I wanted them to have what I have. Listen, my eyes, my mouth, what I tried to hold on to, the things I ran to, changed when my heart changed. And when Jesus said this, he was trying to tell those people who were, who were trying to convince people not to believe, trying to put stumbling blocks in the way, he was saying, listen, you need to change your heart. Look at what's going on in your life. Find out what it is that's keeping you from me and get rid of it because you need to change your heart or you will never, ever come and be with me in heaven. You'll never see eternal life. That's what he was actually trying to teach there. Now, is there a practical application here for believers? Yes, there is. And I think all of us have experienced this. Have you ever went through a tough time in your faith? Anybody? Been through a tough time? Where you find that you're drifting from God? And maybe your prayers don't seem as effective anymore and, and your desire for the word or Christian music or, or being in Christian fellowship just kind of starts to fade. And you notice you start getting angry more? You ever notice that? You ever notice you get kind of short-tempered? And, and is that, Am I the only one? Please tell me other people are like that. Okay, good. Whew. I'm starting to wonder. And they start to blame other people for their situation. I'm not going to church because I don't like that one lady or whatever. You know what I mean? You start to see bitterness coming out and what they say and what they do. Right? Well, here's, 
here's my suggestion to you when that happens. If you're a believer, all right, you're going to go to heaven. But if you're getting away from God, here's what to do. Look back in your life and see if you can find the moment when things changed. And in that moment, when you started seeing things change, what was it at that time that started to have great influence in your life? Was it someone you started hanging out with? Was it someone you started dating? Was it your desire to have more money or maybe taking a different job? Right? What was influencing you at that time that started to pull you away from God? Because usually you can walk it back to exactly what it was. And what we can take from this lesson that he gave the unbelievers was there's things we can cut out too. Whatever it is at that time that started pulling you away from God, cut it off and get rid of it. It's better to find new friends, to find a new job, to find new people to hang out with, to have less money, but be in the center of God's will and not have to deal with his discipline. It's better to cut off whatever is pulling you away from God. So there is an application here. And I know all of us have been there, you know, that, that, that anybody ever got the promotion and you're so worried about pleasing your, God, you know, your, your, your employers and you're so worried about moving up the ladder that, that you read less and, and the things of God start to mean less and the next thing you know, you're in a train wreck, right? It can still happen to us. So that's the one way we can apply that. Now let's move on to verse 10. It says, See that you not despise one of these little ones. For, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. How many people have verse 11 missing in their Bibles? Anybody? Okay. How many people have it in italics in their Bible? Or bracketed in their Bible? Okay, I'm going to explain that here in a minute. See, verse 10, we totally change context. He shifts from unbelievers to believers. And what he's doing is he wants to warn, uh, warn that no one start to look down on these new believers. All right, he's saying, be careful how you treat these new believers. And here's what happens, and I've seen it as a pastor time and time again, right? When someone first becomes a believer, right, you can either embrace them and encourage them, or you can ignore them and discourage them, right? You, you, can, you can take for granted their value, and end up hurting that person and pushing that person from Christ. So he's saying, I don't want you to do that. He's saying, these are my little children, and I want to make sure that you understand how important they are. Right? And he's really pointing this out. Because sometimes new believers will do things like children do. Right? And we're not that patient with them. Like sometimes new believers will make silly mistakes. When someone here first believed, did anybody here make a mistake? Anybody? I mean, do something pretty stupid. I had a friend that he, he, wanted, he didn't know which doctrine was right, so he was trying everything. He was a train wreck. He was trying to speak in tongues, trying to, trying to be a Calvinist and an Arminianist. He was trying to, I mean, he was just taking a big spoonful of every doctrine out there just so he wouldn't miss it. And his life was a train wreck. And I'm like, okay, you need to settle down and read and pray and let God direct you. Right now, you're, you know, you're getting off track. So sometimes they, you know, sometimes they do silly things, and they, sometimes as new believers they feel... You know, they got to do something, and they, what they do gets them in trouble. Sometimes they ask a ton of questions. Right, anybody ever had someone that just came to faith, ask them a ton of questions, some that even challenge you? And you're like going, oh, just study for yourself. <laughs> anybody ever do that? Good. I'm not the only one. No, I'm just kidding. But sometimes they're just like your little brother or your little sister. Why do you do that? Why, do you do that? Why is your car so messy? 
how come your friends are weird? You know, they just bug you all the time, right? It's just that they want to spend time with you, but we always reject them. It's the same thing with new believers. Sometimes new believers, we lose our patience with them, right? And some of the more self-righteous people will, will look at these new believers and start to look down on them and devalue them. Now, this is very, very, very important. The word despise here in the Greek means to view as less valuable. I see this all the time in churches. There becomes an established hierarchy. You know what I mean? And they do everything. And anytime a new believer wants to raise up and do something, they push them back down. You're new. I got this. And they devalue their opinion. They devalue their worth. And they, and they just start to push them down, and they start to see them as less than they are because they've been saved longer. And so they discourage them, and it ends up being one of those churches where you have 10% of the people absolutely burnt out of their mind because they're doing everything, and then you have 90% of the people who have believed and want to do something and feel lost because they have nothing to do. Has anybody ever been that person that feels like, gosh, I just want something to do? Anybody ever been that person? And you go and talk to somebody, and they just kill your dreams as soon as you come up to them. Has that ever happened to you? Hey, I'd like to do this. We don't do things that way. You know what I mean? Or, hey, you know, could I get involved in that? It's taken care of. So it ends up with this huge imbalance. And what happens is you may be, you may actually be becoming one of those people that caused them to stumble. Like the ones he warned earlier. Because you're devaluing their position with God. And this is something we have to be very, very careful of. Because all believers are important to God regardless of how long they believed. It just doesn't matter. Now, He's going to explain that in verse 11, but let me attack the reason it's not in some of your, some of your Bibles. Okay, in some of the earlier, you know, more reliable manuscripts, verse 11 did not exist in this text. It didn't exist. However, if you look, the exact same thing is said in Luke chapter 19, and it is in all the earlier manuscripts. Luke chapter 19 uh, and verse 10 says the exact thing verse 11 does. So what happened is most likely a translator added a footnote from Luke to this section, and it got included. Now, a lot of people freak out about that, but here's the deal. By looking at Luke 19.10, we know that this was inspired, correct? Because it was said. So it doesn't bother me that they added it. It is the inspired word of God, so we're going to cover that. I just want to deal with it because every time I don't say that, I get that one seminary student or the one person you know overachiever that texts me and goes i don't know why you did that it's not in the real bible you know what i mean and then i push them down and despise it no i'm just kidding no but anyway <laughs> i just wanted to explain to you this this is scripture it was inspired it's in luke chapter 19 verse 10 it's probably just a footnote put in by a translator but it is important so we're going to take a look at it so verse 11 what it means that let's look back at verse 11 here real quick just in case i lost you there it says for the son of man has come to save that which was lost right? How many people have heard that quoted before? A lot of people heard that quoted before? Okay, so the reason this is so important, the reason this is so important is that new believers are the reason Jesus came. Okay, Jesus didn't come in spite of unbelievers. He came because of them. He wanted to make the unbelievers, new believers. That's his whole mission. When someone comes to Christ, they should be the guest of honor. The whole reason he came was so that conversion could happen, and you should feel blessed to be a part of that conversion. 
This is what he was trying to say in verse 11. The whole reason I came, the whole reason I came and was born was so that I could bring eternal life and have a world full of new believers. Don't, don't dismiss them. Don't discourage them. They're the fruit of my labor. They are important to me. I didn't come here for you righteous people. Luke chapter 5, verse 32. I have not come to call what? The righteous, but what? Sinners to repentance. When Jesus said that, he was basically saying, he was kind of making a spoof on him. They're like, what's he doing sitting with all these terrible people? And he goes, well, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for sinners, which offended the Pharisees because they thought they were righteous. What he was really saying is none of you are righteous. I came for all of you, right? When we despise these new believers, when we push them down, when we crush their hopes, and we don't stand beside them, we are literally fighting back against the very reason Jesus came, and we're also forgetting that we were there once. Right? Look at this. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were what? For while we were what? Still helpless. At the right time, Christ died for what? The ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would even dare to die. That basically means somebody will take a bullet for the president, but not for me. Okay? But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet what? Sinners, Christ died for us. So, What he's saying here is, remember, they're the whole reason I came, to see people turn to Christ. You were them once. Don't discourage them. Listen, if you're a new believer, one thing I want to encourage you with is that if you ever felt like, I just don't have a purpose here, I don't know what God has for me, I feel like I'm just supposed to wait until heaven, (laughs) you know? Listen, every believer was created on purpose for a purpose, all of you. There is something you can and should be doing. And as believers who have been in in this for a while, we should be helping them find that, not pushing them down. Because you never know when the person that you're dismissing could be the person that turns your church around, turns your community around, turns your country around. He's saying, listen, I've just warned you about what's going to happen to people who cause these little ones to stumble. Please don't let someone in the family cause them to stumble. They should have to worry about the unbelieving world system. They shouldn't have to worry about you despising them. You should be by their side. You should be lifting them up. They're the reason I came. They should expect stumbling, being thrown in front of them, stumbling blocks from the world. They shouldn't expect it from you. Make sure that you're not one of those who's putting them down. Because he's building up to something that we're going to talk about next week that's very important about how valuable each one of us will be and is to him. But I'm going to leave you there. We'll pick it up there next week. I'm going to ask you, Wood, to please bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation. And here's why. We believe it's the Word of God that has power. We love the music. We, we, you know, we love to hear speakers take the pulpit. But the truth is, it's the Word of God that's powerful. It doesn't matter who presents it or how it's presented. When the Word of God's presented, it speaks to you. And the Bible says it never comes back void. And I have been the person who's sitting out there and feels like the sermon was made just for me. I had someone come up to me last week and they said, gosh, the last few weeks I just feel like you must be following me around or something. 
because everything you're talking about is talking to me, and I go, oh, well, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not stalking you. That's the Holy Spirit. That's how the Word of God works. So if you're not sure where you stand with Christ and the Word of God has revealed that to you and you'd like me to pray for you, listen, don't turn away from that voice. Give me the opportunity to pray for you. I'm not going to point you out or chase you down, but while every head is bowed, if you could just make eye contact and put your head right back down. Bless those people. I'm not going to point you out, but I will pray for you. Because your heart is ready and willing to hear his voice. Now I want you to do something about that. Bless those people. And if you're listening online, you're watching online, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you too. But in today's message, there was a really special message here at the end to those of us who believe. And that is, are we really coming together as a family and making sure that everyone from the new believers on up is really being groomed for success? Are we investing in each other? Because what a tragedy it would be if we became like the people Jesus said, woe to them. Like the unbelieving world who's causing them to stumble. Let's make sure that, that our faith isn't, isn't just about us, but it's about investing in those around us. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for everything that you do. I thank you for your mercy and your kindness. I thank you, God, that your grace is greater than our sin. God, I know that there are people listening all over the place who, who feel your presence. They hear your calling. But there are so many stumbling blocks that have been laid in their way. There are so many things trying to block them from believing. I just pray today, God, that they focus on one thing, the fact that you love them enough to die for them and that you're still calling their name. I just pray, God, that they trust that what Jesus did was enough. And if they can do that, your word promises they'll have eternal life. And I just pray that they contact us somehow or contact someone, a good Christian organization next to them so that they can have those people to invest in their lives. God, we know that anyone who hasn't believed is important to you because you desire to bring them into your family. Let them feel how important you are. they are to you. Let them feel the love that took you to the cross for them and let them make that decision. God, for those of us who have believed, it is so easy to get tunnel vision and only think about what's best for our lives or our faith. Let us remember, God, that this whole family of God is stronger when we invest in each other. Don't let us ever take each other for granted. Let us appreciate from the new believer up to the one that's been saved 30 years or more. Let us appreciate each other and encourage each other to success because in the end, the goal is to see the boundaries of heaven expanded. We just thank you, God, for all that you do. We ask you to keep us safe as we leave here. Let us live what we profess, and if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, we just pray that we would come together and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of at least one more time. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.